Thanks, Laura. And, uh, well, um, good morning, everybody. Uh, and happy Father's Day if you're, if you're a father and, uh, or if you're just going to in, enjoy the day and you're not. Um, but uh, we're going to hear from our Heavenly Father now as we, uh, as we look at his words. I'm going to um, pray first as we begin. Um, our Heavenly Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, as we come to your word this morning, please speak to us, transform our hearts and help us to marvel at your sovereignty and love. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the important, by the way, I should say up the back there, there's an outline. Also, there's a transcript if you would find that helpful as well. But to begin with, I thought I'd talk about entropy. Entropy is one of those really important rules or laws of science. And, and for those of you who don't, don't remember your year 12 science or something like that, simply put, it's the tendency of all things to break down, to lose energy. They don't gain, things don't gain energy and complexity over time. They lose it. Things will tend to disorder, randomness and uncertainty. And this seems to apply in multiple fields of life even beyond science. But you know, it's, I think it's also profoundly analogous to the effects, the curse of sin. Throughout life, you see, what we experience is spiritual and relational breakdown and disorder. You just see it everywhere. As Romans 8 puts it simply, creation has been subjected to decay. And don't we all know it, Right? And that is what makes stories like we're going to look at today and the gospel that these stories point to so absolutely wonderful. Because what we see that God is doing is entropy in reverse. God is actually bringing together lives separated by sin through the power and the wisdom of our loving God. Now, there's six chapters that we need to cover today. I hope you've got your Bible open because actually skimming over some of those headings will, will, will help. So I want to do things a little bit differently. We're going to begin by doing a flyover of the whole lot in summary. And we're going to base that on um, Andrew Reid, a, a guy who has, has written an excellent, helpful, short commentary on it. And so I'm going to base this on this. And there's going to be some stuff on the screens. Basically, these six chapters contain three stories. And it's the classic threefold pattern that we've seen a number of times in, in Genesis and elsewhere in the Bible. You get two similar stories that, have, that are connected in sort of structure and then you get a third one that's similar but then has some really important differences and turns things on its head. And that's what we're going to see today. So story one, if you're looking at your Bibles there, is Genesis 42. So I'm going to be quick here, so follow it along. As we left off last week, the whole region is impacted by a devastating famine. Jacob sends all of his sons, except for Benjamin, down to Egypt to buy grain. And when they get there, they've got this audience with Joseph. And he recognises them, because he's been away for 20 years, they don't recognise him. And so he pretends not to believe their story, and he accuses them of being spies, and he imprisons them for three days before sending them back home. And they're to bring back Benjamin this time in order to prove that their story is actually true. And, and they need to leave another brother, Simeon, in Egypt as a hostage, I guess you could say, as a guarantee. 
And when they get home, however, Jacob goes, I'm not letting Benjamin go. No way, I've already lost one child, I'm not losing another one. Story two is Genesis chapter 43 through to 45, 28. The famine gets worse. And so Jacob can't hold off any longer. And so he sends all of his sons back to Egypt, including Benjamin. And when they again face Joseph, the reception seems really different this time. And he seems to be really warm. It's going, oh, okay, I believe you. And so he puts on this great feast for them. And then he sends them home with grain. But he's also planted a silver goblet in Benjamin's sack. And then he sends the troops after them and they capture them and he accuses them of theft. And then he says, look, I'm only going, I'm not going to charge you all for the sins of one. The rest of you can go back home. But Benjamin, because he stole a cup, has to stay in Egypt as my slave. And Judah then pleads with Joseph to, to, to free Benjamin, take him as a slave instead. Well, Joseph then breaks down in front of them and he tells them who he is. He tells them to bring the whole family back down to Egypt so that they might survive the famine. And then they go back and they tell Jacob the news and he's pretty stoked. Story three, Genesis 46 to 47. The final story has God sending Jacob and the whole family down to Egypt. Jacob is reunited with Joseph and he gets coached on how to approach Pharaoh. And Pharaoh has, has an audience with Jacob. He gives uh, the, the Hebrews the best land of Goshen to live in. And then Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Then Joseph brings blessing to everyone because he manages the crisis of this devastating famine beautifully. Jacob then and finishes with Jacob making Joseph swear that after he dies, he will return his body to the promised land of Canaan and not leave him in Egypt. So that's a very quick flyover of all six chapters that we're looking at today. And at the end of those chapters, Joseph, his brothers and his father are together again. They're reunited. An ill-treated son, the brothers that so wronged him and the father who thought that he was dead. They're together, but they're not together in the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but they're in Egypt. However, what I want us to do for the rest of this talk is actually to just have another look at three of the stories within that bigger story, three of the individual stories. Because you see, each of these figures have gone through very different journeys in order to reach the same end. And I think there's stuff that we can reflect upon as we do that. So first of all, let's consider Joseph's story. Now, I don't know what it would have been like to have been in that throne room that day. It must have stunned him when his brothers first came and bowed down before him in Egypt. All those years ago, you remember, he had this dream of them all as sheaves of grain bowing before him. And here they are, come to buy grain and their faces are on the floor. They didn't recognise him, why would they? It had been more than 20 years and he's dressed up in Egyptian garb. All they can see is Pharaoh's two IC looking at them with this strange fire in his eyes. But he shall recognise them. Their faces 
would have been burned in his memory. And he must have just sat there shocked to the core. A thousand things must have gone through his mind that morning or afternoon, whenever it was. And his adrenaline would have been pumping, wouldn't it? But what, what's the story as we did that flyover? What's with all of those long drawn out mind games that he ends up playing with them? What's he on about? You know, saying they're spies, sending them back to prove their story, then welcoming them with a feast and then sending them back with their silver and the planted... What's the go with all of that? Why does he do it? What was he doing? Well, we could put ourselves in his shoes and just imagine what we might do. Maybe he decided to have some sport with them while he was planning his next step. Right, whoa, that's my brother's. Okay, let me come up with something. And while I'm at it, I'm going to have a bit of fun. Yeah, he had the, he had the power now. So maybe it was time for some power games. You know, like a cat playing with a mouse before it's going to eat it. You know, but this time the cat doing the playing is one who had a very bad experience with some mice when it was younger, right? So this is a pretty cranky cat. Um, I'm going to smash you. But before I do, I'm going to work some poetic justice into this. Let's see how you like being put in prison, brothers. Let's see how you like the taste of enslavement. Let's see how you like being on the receiving end of some unprovoked hostility from someone that you've done nothing wrong to. But let me say there is a danger in psychologising too much and basing our understanding of Joseph's actions on what he may or may not have been thinking. It can only be guesswork if we do that. And while great stories such as those that we read in the Bible um, provoke us to wonder at such things and they stir up our imaginations, we don't know the mind of Joseph and we can't unless the Bible tells us what it was. Now, it is more important that we look at what the text does say and work from there. So what has the text told us? Well, that Joseph is very strategic and uncommonly wise. This is not some random game playing while he deals with his childhood trauma. Whatever feelings he might have been wrestling with in the process, and by the way, it is clear in the text that there was a lot of emotion all the way through this. But what he actually does is very shrewd. And it is done according to chapter 42, verse 9, as it's on the screen, as a direct response to him remembering his dream about them. That's why he then goes and does what he does, because he remembered his dream. The first dream that he had has already started to take place. But there was a second dream, wasn't there? And that had the 11 stars in it, remember? plus the sun and the moon, Joseph's father and mother, Joseph's family, perhaps representative of that. Well, here there are 11 and he is in power and the land is in famine and he knows the famine's going to get worse. How can I get the rest of my family gathered around me? That's what God told me is going to happen. He uses the spy ruse to put pressure on them to reveal information about their family. Because after all, Joseph's got no idea now who's alive or dead or anything else. He's been off the radar for 20 years. 
And when he finds out about Benjamin, he kicks his plan into gear. The schemes involve getting his full brother Benjamin into Egypt. Now, there's likely two goals that he's working towards here. The first one is this. He is manoeuvring his brothers into a situation where he can gauge whether they have changed or not. Were they still calloused, violent men, steeped in envy and jealousy of dad's new favourite, Benjamin? Now that they've got their grain, now that they're free to go back home, would they be prepared to leave Benjamin behind as a slave like they had done to him all of those years ago? The heart of this test was testing their hearts. But the second goal is actually the bigger picture and the bigger thing that's going on. It's the fulfilment of the second dream. He needed a way of making sure that his father and the rest of his family got safely to him in Egypt because there's still five more years of famine to come and that's something that Joseph emphasises. Benjamin is the lure that's going to make sure they do it and leave the land of the promise to do it. That's a big lure. Well, the telling moment for Joseph was Judah's speech. That is when Joseph understood that things with his brothers really had changed. But that was also the moment that Joseph decided to stop with the stratagems and just tell them the truth. And not just about who he was, but about how urgent it was that they get his father to come to Egypt. You see, Joseph's story has been one of God-given insight. Joseph knew that the Lord was with him and had been with him all of the way. He knew that the dreams and the interpretations of the dreams that God had given him were all true and were sure to happen as anything. The two times before with the cupbearer and baker and with Pharaoh himself, He answered at those times with unwavering certainty, knowing what would happen. And he acted in light of the futures that God foreshadowed in those dreams. He's doing the same here. Despite his own personal shock and distress at seeing his brothers, when they bowed before him, he saw even more clearly, this is the work of God. This is God doing his thing. It must have felt like a thousand threads of his life were all suddenly coming together at once and making sense. An emotional shock, yes, simultaneously, however, overlain by a profound theological realisation. And we know that this is what Joseph understood because he says so at the very moment he reveals himself to his brothers. Look on the screen there. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. This is not the product of years of reflection after he's just seen them. He says, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph saw the sovereign hand of God in the whole thing. And what God had revealed, Joseph knew would happen and so needed acting upon. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that pretty impressive. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 tells us this about faith. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. 
This is what the ancients were commended for. And Jacob was one of them. And Joseph was one of them. Despite the distress he was feeling at seeing his brothers again, Joseph knew that he needed to look beyond his personal issues to fulfilling God's purposes. Well, isn't there something in that? But we would be wrong to think out of this, that this makes Joseph some kind of, you know, godly elite kind of thing, a guy, a superhuman, task-focused guy who could compartmentalise things really nicely. Good on him. I suspect he probably could compartmentalise things pretty well. But no, what we see here is his confidence in God and God's sovereignty is actually what enabled him to deal with the relational distress. It was the sovereignty of God that enabled him to cope and understand and reflect. It enabled him to look at his brothers differently, at an emotional level even, because the truth about God was the defining truth and that helped him understand the rest. Knowing that God was behind things empowered him to act with grace and with forgiveness. Let's return to the aftermath of Judah's speech at the end of chapter 44. What Joseph did next was a stunning act of grace, forgiveness and restoration. Joseph had been traumatised by the behaviour and his treatment at the hands of his brothers. Remember what he named his first son, Manasseh? A name that means forgetting because at last he could now go and forget about all of his father's house. Think of how painful your childhood memories must be to name your child in celebration of being able to forget them. His brother's treatment of him and the lasting hardship he endured because of it was still a very open wound. He wasn't impervious to it. He could have unloaded more than two decades worth of slow-cooked vengeance upon them. Justice, you might even call it. But he didn't. After Judah's speech, having ordered his Egyptian attendants to leave, he let out all of that decades-long accumulated pain in this torrent of tears. And then he speaks to his brothers, not with a cool tolerance, but with actually a loving care for how they might be feeling being confronted with him. That's mind-blowing. Have, have a look at what he says again in, in verse 4 of chapter 45. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. You don't be distressed by this. You don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. No harboured bitterness. This is a genuine, gracious, loving forgiveness that reaches even out of his own pain, but not to scald, as he had every right to, but to soothe. And after he had said all he needed to say, look at what he does. Verse 14. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. 
would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. It's an absolutely remarkable story of forgiveness, isn't it? And what a joy this would have been for Joseph himself, don't you think? To actually, what a liberating thing to be able to love again those that you had so much reason to hate. And to be able to let go of the pain and let go of the bitterness and heal. Tell me that Joseph isn't as big a winner out of this as his brothers are. Of course, even here, at what you could easily go is is Joseph's most glorious moment. It actually is pointing to a far more glorious moment of forgiveness, isn't it? The forgiveness of a gracious saviour who could forgive and restore someone like Peter who denied him three times at his greatest time of need, denied he even knew him and abandoned him to a torturous death but then would restore him afterwards. Who could say of his 11 brothers, you'll abandon me to death but I'll see you again in Galilee. And who could pray even when dying on a cross Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That is an infinitely more glorious forgiveness. The grace, forgiveness and restoration of us sinners by our slain and risen Saviour and God, Jesus Christ. Now let's turn, however, to the forgiven. Let's now have a look at Judah's story. Now Judah, unlike Joseph is no example of righteousness, right? We first met him as one of Joseph's brothers. He was part of the conspiracy to get rid of daddy's technicolour coat wearing, you'll all bow before me, dreaming favourite. Maybe he was less bad than his brothers. After all, he didn't want to kill him. He just wanted to sell him into slavery. But then in chapter 38, we read a lot more about him. He marries a Canaanite, he gives birth to two sons so evil that God strikes them dead and then in fear of losing his youngest son to a bad luck woman, refuses to honour his promise to his first son's widow Tamar to give him to his youngest son to her in marriage. And so she is forced to prostitute himself to him in disguise in order to be able to get pregnant and have a child who would be able to look after her in her old age. And then he has the hide to order her death when his daughter-in-law's pregnancy is discovered. This is Judah. Now, cleverly, she kept some of his gear left as a down payment and he exposes him as the child's father. So far, so bad for Judah. And yet at the end of that story, there is this hint that Judah is perhaps not the high-handed sinner that we thought he might have been. Because what he does is he publicly confesses Tamar's righteousness and his own sin in this whole sordid affair. She is more righteous than I, he says. Judah had been humbled and it would appear that he has learned some hard lessons. See, after Joseph's sting operation with the planted cup in Benjamin's sack goes perfectly to plan, it is Judah who leads takes the lead and becomes the voice of his brothers. Previously, he had guaranteed Benjamin's safety to Jacob, offering his own precious sons as hostages should Benjamin not return. And now in this speech in chapter 44, he's willing to exchange his own freedom for that of his father's new favourite son. 
and not resentfully, but out of love for his father. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in misery. That's Judah remembering what Jacob had said to him. So now if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the grey head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Not, not you will, Mr. Egyptian, but we will have brought our father's head down to the grave in sorrow. You notice there that the admission that this compounding of grief for Jacob would be their fault as brothers. It's clear that Judah's conscience has felt the guilt of what they did to Joseph and he's determined to do whatever he can to make amends for this, at least with respect to Benjamin. Judah is owning his part in that earlier crime and he is prepared to trade his own life into a time of slavery to free his brother. Verse 32, your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. That's what repentance looks like in the Bible. Repentance doesn't merely regret the wrong and then do nothing about it. It begins with deep pain at the truth of one's own sin, that that unhappy look in the mirror. But it then takes action. Repentance owns the offence and doesn't shift responsibility to others. Notice here that although his brothers did exactly the same sin, maybe even worse, Judah has no interest in avoiding bearing the consequences of what he knew he had done. Not like to say, oh, well, we all did it. No, I'm owning it. He can't undo the past, but he can make sure that he doesn't repeat it. And he can do what he can to make things right again. Of course, there's a key aspect of repentance that we should pay attention to that's not reported here. And, and it's, it's the recognition that all sin is fundamentally doing something wrong against God. Even those sins like that of the brothers, where they clearly are, clearly are victims in, in this world, they're still done in God's sight, they're still done against his commands, and they still cause offence to him. And he is our highest obligation. It serves no good for someone to repent with respect to men and not with respect to God. To turn from the lesser sin while leaving the greater in place. And that is why confession, acknowledging the truth of our sin to God himself, must be the first thing that we do. And then asking for his transforming power to change us that we might feel, think and do what is pleasing in his sight. Repentance 
is to be characteristic of the Christian life. We don't wallow in guilt as Christians. We address it. And first of all, we address it with God, placing it at the foot of the cross. But then we address it humbly and quite often needs to be courageously with the others that we have sinned against. But before we move on from Judah, we need to know one more thing about this story, about his story. As we're going to find out in next week's passage, due to the indiscretions of his older brothers, Judah now has the rights as Jacob's firstborn. It is through Judah's family line in particular that the promises to Abraham will be fulfilled. And so doesn't you think it seems it's this beautiful arc in the Bible It seems so deeply appropriate that Judah, the one whose great descendant Jesus Christ would bear the sins of the whole world, he would do so by dying as our substitute, a substitute for sinful humanity. That his great ancestor Judah would be prepared to exchange his life to free another out of love for his father. And speaking of fathers, it's Father's Day. Yea, And while it may not have been the first Sunday in September when all of this happened, the day he found out that Joseph was alive was a pretty good Father's Day for Jacob, wasn't it? The Jacob we meet in these chapters, let's think about his story. He is an old man carrying heavy burdens. He has suffered much in his life. Later on, he would describe his life to Pharaoh as being literally, the days of his life as being few and bad. Imagine being 130 and saying, you know, life, the days are few and bad. His beloved wife, Rachel, has died. Leah has died. He's had the trauma of holding the bloodied robe of his precious son that he thought was torn apart by animals. He's a nomad living in a land that's not his own, racked by famine. They're desperate for food. And he's had to send his youngest son away, the only remaining child of Rachel, Send him to Egypt against his wishes because the ruler down there won't let them have any food without him. And he's just got to wait and look at the horizon for months and months and months. God has been with him, but his life has not been easy. The great promises that God gave to Abraham have been passed down to him, but seem to be depressingly far from reality. He's struggled with men and with God his whole life. He's Israel by name and Israel by experience. And he's weighed down with grief and fatigue. And then his 11 sons, 11 sons turn up on the horizon, loaded up with treasures and food and with a bunch of extra carts for carrying everyone with them. But it's the message that they bring that stuns him the most. Joseph is alive. He's got this memory of this bloody ripped apart coat. Joseph is alive and ruling Egypt. His heart would have left, leapt in hope. But it's on this journey that the truth of those enduring promises are reinforced to him. Look at chapter 46. So Israel set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob. 
Here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. See, God had proved himself faithful to Jacob, just as he had to Abraham and just as he had to Isaac before him. And he would continue to honour his promises steadfastly, enduringly, even after Jacob has died, he will honour his promises to Jacob. And then in chapter 46, 29, it's Father's Day. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. And Israel said to Joseph, now I'm ready to die since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Well, Jacob and his family settle in Egypt, but Jacob is determined that that's not where he will come to his rest because he was looking forward to another family reunion, one in the land of promise. And so he makes Joseph swear an oath to him, promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. And then Joseph swore to him. And Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Kind of like this relief. Yes. Praise God. And you notice that final line about him leaning on the top of his staff that the writer of Hebrews specifically mentions when he talks about the faith of Jacob in chapter 11. The knowledge that his body would return to the land of the promise showed that he was looking forward in faith to a much greater future founded on the promises of God. Jacob's life was a life of struggle and some of that was of his own making and some of it not. Just like it is for all of us. His was the experience of one who had encountered the entropy of sin in this world in many of its forms. Judah felt the weight of his own sin, the breaking down of his own family, the shame of his failings, the pangs of regret, the burden of responsibility. Joseph experienced the entropy of sin too from the side of innocence. He faced violence and injustice and prejudice and neglect and deep family rejection. And they all lived in a world that was universally broken by hunger and need and the scourge of famine. But in all these things, God was with them and God was guiding them and God was fulfilling his promises to them. Now, I don't know which of those three stories resonates with you at this point in your life right now the most. Whether it's Joseph wrestling with forgiveness, Judah wrestling with guilt, Jacob wrestling with everything, we all are wrestling. But here is the great thing about our stories and all of our stories, and that is if your faith is in Jesus, you're wrestling with God alongside you in all of these things. There is way more to be said about Romans 8 than I've got time to talk about today. 
Bruce uh, Linton preached a cracker of a sermon on it at Morgs and Lives Commissioning Service and that might be recorded somewhere for you to be able to have a look at. And we're actually going to spend three whole weeks in Romans 8 in the, in the lead up to Christmas. But it's right that we look at just verse 28 today because it captures the reality not just of Joseph, Judah and Jacob but the reality of life for every believer. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And can I say that one, that's a, that's a verse that gets trotted out a lot, doesn't it? Maybe you've had something hard happen in your life and someone said, oh, Romans 8, 28. Please never hear that as a shallow platitude. That is a promise, not a platitude. And it holds out to us two precious realities as we struggle through this entropied riddled life. There's this wonderful, first of all, promise of consolation. We know that in all things, the good, the bad, and everything in between, God is truly working for our good. And we have seen this throughout Genesis. And you see it throughout the Scriptures. It's what He does all the time. The evidence is there. It might be in a moment that he's working for your good. It might be over decades that he's working for your good. But in all things, always, God's sovereign hand is at work for the good of his people. And that is consoling, isn't it? That is a deep comfort to hold on to. But it's not only a consoling truth. See, Romans 8.28 not only holds out consolation, but participation. Joseph was a part of what God was doing. And so was Judah. And so was Jacob. They're not just receivers of the blessing, they pass it on. They had a role to play in God's great work. They were called according to God's purpose. And so are we. In all things... God is working his plan out and that plan involves us. It involves you. And so in his goodness, we're not just recipients, we're participants, partners with God in that great glorious work. And what work is that? Well, what Christ died and rose again to bring into reality, the reconciliation, the gathering together, of all things, the ultimate family reunion, the bringing bringing together of the whole family of God in Christ, in peace, in a world liberated forever from its slavery to sin. Romans 8, 18 to 21. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Well, may that day come soon. Amen.